Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, April 22nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Hungary casts doubt on Ukraine's long-term NATO membership. A whistleblower alleges the Hunter Biden tax probe is being mishandled. United Kingdom Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab resigns over a bullying probe. Russia accidentally bombs its own city. Manslaughter charges against Alec Baldwin are dropped. Twitter starts removing blue ticks from verified users. BuzzFeed says it will close its news division. Sri Lankans protest on the fourth anniversary of the Easter bombings. Juventus's 15-point penalty for illicit transfer activity is reversed. And $15 million worth of gold and other valuables go missing from Toronto Airport. In our top story, Orban cast doubt on long-term Ukraine-NATO membership. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, RT, and Business Insider. Following NATO chief Jen Stoltenberg saying Friday that all NATO allies have agreed that Ukraine will become a NATO member, Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban has cast doubt on Ukraine's aspirations, tweeting, What? in response. Stoltenberg made his first wartime visit to Ukraine Thursday, during which he added that Ukraine's rightful place is in the Euro-Atlantic family. Ukrainian President Zelensky accepted NATO's invitation to a July summit in Lithuania but said what Ukraine needed most was NATO membership. Orban has repeatedly said Hungary will not support Ukraine's applications to either NATO or the EU. Hungary has also refused to provide NATO military aid to Kyiv or allow such shipments to travel through its territory in support of Ukraine. Finland became the 31st NATO member earlier this month. Meanwhile, Sweden's accession remains stalled by Turkey and Hungary, but is expected. As Stoltenberg refrained from providing a clear time frame for Ukraine's membership, Zelensky urged him to overcome the reluctance of some NATO members to supply long-range rockets and modern fighter jets to his country. Thanks for the facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Newsweek. Despite the military alliance's slow-paced accession process, Ukraine has quickly built a NATO-ready military within 14 months of being ruthlessly attacked by Russia. The purpose of NATO is to defend the West against geopolitical threats, so quickly accepting Kyiv into its ranks should be a no-brainer. Whatever qualms certain countries may have with Ukraine, they can be dealt with once all rule-abiding nations have joined together under one banner. The Gray Zone is giving us an establishment-critical narrative. Hungary isn't the only one against NATO expansion and its deadly consequences. And the proof is in the thousands of protesters and even some politicians taking to the streets and speaking out against NATO and the U.S. Greeks, Germans, and Britons, among others, know this is a U.S. proxy war against Moscow. And they don't want their husbands, wives, and children to shed blood over these political games. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there is a 1% chance that Ukraine will join NATO before the year 2024. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. An IRS whistleblower alleges the Hunter Biden probe is being mishandled. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NBC, Fox News and The New York Post. An unnamed U.S. Internal Revenue Service agent said to be involved in the federal probe of Hunter Biden's taxes has alleged that undue political interference has hampered the investigation. 
Hunter Biden is, of course, President Joe Biden's son. Mark D. Lytle, a lawyer for the whistleblower, wrote to Congress Wednesday stating his client is a career IRS criminal supervisory special agent who has been overseeing the ongoing and sensitive investigation of a high-profile, controversial subject since early 2020. While the letter did not explicitly mention Hunter Biden, sources reportedly confirmed that he is the figure in question. The letter said the agent, under whistleblower protections, could unveil clear conflicts of interest and preferential treatment and politics improperly infecting the tax probe. It added that the agent would contradict sworn testimony to Congress by a senior political appointee, believed to be Attorney General Merrick Garland, who last year said the IRS probe would be conducted independently. This comes as former acting CIA Director Mike Morrill testified that Secretary of State Antony Blinken, while working for Joe Biden's 2020 campaign, prompted him to organize the letter signed by 51 former intelligence officials falsely claiming that the Hunter Biden laptop scandal bore the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. This emerged as part of a letter sent to Blinken from the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Representatives Jim Jordan and Michael Turner, both Republicans of Ohio, urging the Secretary of State to provide all related documents, communications, and the identities of everyone involved. Scott, thank you for the facts. Our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from Washington Post. Biden has been in public office for a staggering half-century, and there have never been any signs of greed or corruption. Any wrongdoing by his son Hunter seems more like a personal tragedy than a public scandal. As many politicians' children are, Hunter was likely destroyed by the political arena he was born into but never chose to be a part of. Whether he committed illegal acts has nothing to do with his father, but rather an unfortunate media landscape that can't help but report on celebrities' children. And the Republican narrative comes from the New York Post. Of course, Joe Biden has gone out of his way to shield Hunter from prosecution. How else could he have committed so many documented crimes without ever facing justice for any of them? If regular Americans lied on their federal firearms form and then filmed themselves waving their illegal gun in the air while enjoying the company of a prostitute, they would likely face serious consequences from federal authorities. Hunter Biden committed both of those crimes, among others, but his dad's power and influence got him off the hook. According to a nerd narrative, there's a 42% chance that Joe Biden will be re-elected president of the United States in 2024, and that's coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. That's a pretty high percentage. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, is, that is a pretty high percentage, right. And note, that's that he'll be re-elected. Not, some right. of the times these nerd narratives are, they'll be the candidate for whatever party. That's yeah. 42% that he'll be re-elected. Right. Uh, and then I'm sure that's factoring in some percentage that he either won't run by choice or some other reason he doesn't run. So basically, <clears throat> it's a coin flip if he decides to run that he'll right. win. News coming from the United Kingdom as Dominic Raab resigns as Deputy Prime Minister over a bullying probe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, BBC News, Guardian, and Sky News. Dominic Raab on Friday resigned as the United Kingdom's Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary after a months-long independent investigation found he had bullied multiple government officials across three different departments. In a letter posted on Twitter, Rob, who had pledged to resign if investigators found any evidence of bullying, said the inquiry had set a dangerous precedent by setting the threshold for bullying so low. 
The inquiry, conducted by independent investigator Adam Tolley, followed up on eight formal complaints of bullying made against Rob while he was acting as Justice Secretary and Foreign Secretary under Boris Johnson and as Brexit Secretary under Theresa May. The investigation found that Rob acted in an intimidating and insulting manner with unreasonably and persistently aggressive conduct on several occasions at meetings with policy officials. Rob is Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's second cabinet minister to quit over bullying allegations in less than six months. Last November, Cabinet Office Minister Gavin Williamson resigned following accusations he sent abusive messages to former Chief Whip Wendy Morton. Meanwhile, Sunak is currently under investigation by Parliamentary Watchdog over a potential failure to declare wife Akshata Murdi's shares in a childcare firm set to benefit from new government policies. Okay, unsurprisingly, we have some political narratives on this story. Let's start with the left narrative spin from The Guardian. This is a huge setback for Rishi Sunak, who had promised to put integrity, professionalism, and accountability at the heart of his administration. The fact that he knew Rob belittled and demeaned his staff before reappointing him shows he never intended to root out bullying from his cabinet. He is failing to deliver the ethics he promised. A right narrative coming from LBC News. The motives of government officials who complained about Rob must be questioned, as even the investigators found that the now ex-deputy prime minister did not intend to upset, humiliate, or physically intimidate anyone. We might never get to know the whole truth due to shortcomings in the inquiry, including the systematic leaking of skewed and fabricated claims, which resulted in Rob being subject to trial by the media. And we have a cynical narrative from Open Democracy. There is one inevitable conclusion to this whole saga. A real bully always bounces back. There is a hugely disproportionate power dynamic between politicians and government employees, and a plethora of examples of similar cases go unheard. Rob will inevitably return to the front bench, and ministers' bullying behavior towards civil servants will likely continue to be both a symptom and a cause of this sick government. There's a nerd narrative as well. It says there's an 85% chance that Rishi Sunak will be Prime Minister of the United Kingdom on January 1st, 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. A Russian warplane accidentally bombed their own city. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Straits Times, BBC News, Ukraine Forum, The Evening Standard, and The Guardian. A Russian Sukhoi-34 warplane accidentally bombed the Russian city of Belgorod late on Thursday injuring three civilians. Regional Governor Yakushlov Gladkov added that four cars and four apartment buildings were damaged. Thank God there are no dead, he said. In a statement, Russia's defense ministry admitted the error, stating that the fighter jet accidentally discharged aircraft ordnance at 22.15 local time on Thursday. Meanwhile, Russia launched 12 kamikaze drones into Ukraine overnight. Ukraine's Air Force said eight of them were shot down. At least one of the drones struck an infrastructure facility in the region of Venezia, local officials said, causing a fire that's since been extinguished with no reports of civilian casualties. Further Russian attacks were reported in the regions of Donetsk, Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, and Nipopetrovsk over the past day. Officials in Donetsk said one civilian was killed and another was injured in the attacks. There were no reports of civilian casualties elsewhere. Meanwhile, with the front lines largely stalled outside of creeping Russian gains in the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, the UK's defense ministry said severe mud is highly likely slowing operations for both sides in the conflict in its latest intelligence briefing. However, it added surface conditions can be expected to improve in the coming weeks. Elsewhere, after making his first visit to Kyiv since the beginning of the conflict, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said that all of the alliance's members 
have agreed that Ukraine will become a member once the war is over. When the war ends, we need to ensure that history doesn't repeat itself, Stoltenberg said. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. And we have a pro-Russian narrative from the National Security Archive. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And we have a nerd narrative saying there's an 8% chance that there will be more than four deaths between Russia and NATO forces outside of Ukraine before July 1st, 2023. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. They mentioned that Russia sent kamikaze drones. I wonder what's the difference between that and like a guided missile. Like a drone that's in the intention of hitting something and blowing up sounds like a projectile missile to me, right? Doesn't to matter me. to uh, the folks of Venezia, I guess. Right. Yeah, it, I'm sure it all feels the same. <laughs> Manslaughter charges against Alec Baldwin are dropped. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Mirror, BBC News, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Los Angeles Times, and NPR Online News. On Thursday, New Mexico prosecutors announced that they are dropping involuntary manslaughter charges against actor Alec Baldwin over the fatal on-set shooting of cinematographer Halnia Hutchins in October of 2021. This comes after prosecutors learned that Baldwin's prop gun, a Colt 45 pistol, had been modified with a new trigger in a way that made a misfire more likely, adding that the newly revealed facts, quote, demand further investigation and forensic analysis. Baldwin had been filming Rust on a ranch south of Santa Fe when the prop firearm he was pointing at Hutchins went off, killing her and injuring her director, Joel Souza. Accused of showing negligent behavior by pointing a real pistol at Hutchins and placing his finger on the trigger, Baldwin was charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter in January this year. Despite this development, Baldwin, who had pleaded not guilty to manslaughter and criminal culpability, isn't completely absolved as there is potential for charges to be refiled. In March, the movie's safety coordinator and assistant director David Halls pleaded no contest to his conviction for unsafe handling of a firearm and received a suspended sentence of six months of probation. Narrative A comes from Newsweek. This case has been botched from the get-go. The investigators failed to determine how live bullets ended up on a movie set while turning a blind eye to the fact that live rounds were found in multiple locations and that firearms had reportedly gone off by accident before this fatal incident. Moreover, the decision to drop the involuntary manslaughter charges raises questions about whether the previous team of prosecutors ever had sufficient evidence before deciding to charge Baldwin. Narrative B coming from LA Times. Indicting Baldwin was undoubtedly wrong, given he had no reason to believe there was a live bullet in the firearm, as he relied on the role of professionals whose job it was to ensure safety on the set. Nevertheless, Hutchins' death was not an accident. It was the tragic and wholly avoidable result of Hollywood's obsession with authenticity and its pursuit of profit. This incident highlights the urgent need to legislate or even ban the use of real weapons on movie sets. 
And we have a nerd narrative stating there's a 1% chance that the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution will be amended or repealed before the year 2025, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I find it ironic that the uh, narrative A, which seems to defend Baldwin, kind of counteracts narrative B that says that there's no way he could have known there were bullets in the gun. According to narrative A, there were just guns firing off on the set at all times. So, you know, know. he should have known, I guess, if it's a shooting gallery. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Twitter starts removing blue ticks from verified users. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, Euro News, The National, The Times of Israel, and The Guardian. After months of delays, Twitter on Thursday began removing blue ticks from verified users who did not sign up for its paid subscription service, Twitter Blue. Users who lost their blue ticks included popular figures such as Beyonce, Pope Francis, Oprah Winfrey, and former U.S. President Trump. Twitter had around 300,000 verified accounts under the original blue check system, which was largely comprised of journalists, athletes, and public figures. It was meant to verify that a user was who they said they were and prevent impersonation. However, individual users need to pay $8 per month to keep their blue ticks today, while organizations are charged a starting price of $1,000 a month, with an extra $50 per month for each affiliate or employee account. Meanwhile, Twitter does not confirm the person's identity like the original blue check system. It only verifies a user's phone number, which means the blue tick is no longer a mark to symbolize the authenticity of an account. The microblogging service, which Elon Musk bought for $44 billion last year, is currently valued at less than $20 billion. Thank you, Scott. Narrative A comes from Quartz. Musk can sugarcoat it all he wants, but Twitter is an ad-reliant platform, and ad sales are projected to drop by around 28% this year over last. And the number one problem is Musk. Advertisers can't trust him especially since he's rolled back rules related to objectionable content and revamped the verification system. For Twitter to survive, it must do better than break even, which will only happen when the platform is separated from Musk's personal brand. And narrative B comes from MarketWatch. Saving Twitter was a challenging task, but it looks like the worst is behind Musk and the platform. Twitter now has a sleeker workforce and a subscription model that'll help offset advertising losses. Moreover, many advertisers are returning after waiting to see what Musk would do with the company. In a matter of months, Twitter could be in the black. And the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 25% chance that Twitter will have a corporate credit rating in the C's or worse before July of 2023. Not looking too good for Musk and the folks at Twitter. No, I think I think that a little bit of this is conflated. He happened to buy Twitter right when the kind of the whole tech world went under and the kind of the free money and the low interest rates went away. And uh, a few people that I know, not nearly at Musk's level, but uh, that work for various tech companies, you know, the 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 mindset has gone from growth at any cost to having to actually show that you could turn a profit. So that yeah. I think that mentality shifted at the same time, and now Musk has to turn a profit with Twitter, which before it was only interested in growing. So just give it the time. funny money era is gone. I'm sorry you missed it. Yeah, Eric. yeah. Well, that's okay. You just got to be uh, creative now. <laughs> oh, no. I know. I mean, come on. You have to actually work for your dollar. Oh, no, boy. That's bad news. Yeah. It is bad news. In our next story, BuzzFeed to close its news division and cut 15% of its staff. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Al Jazeera, Verge, Guardian, CNN, and Forbes. 
In a memo sent to staff on Thursday, BuzzFeed CEO Jonah Peretti revealed that BuzzFeed News, the Pulitzer Prize-winning news division of BuzzFeed.com, will shut down as the company can no longer continue to fund it as a standalone organization. In addition to closing BuzzFeed News, the company will cut 15% of its workforce, approximately 180 employees, in its business, content, tech, and administrative teams. Peretti cited the pandemic, a tech recession, a tough economy, a declining stock market, a slowdown in digital advertising, and changing audience habits as factors that led to the decisions. According to the memo, Peretti admitted to over-investing in BuzzFeed News, as well as to not holding the company to higher standards for profitability. He also added that cost-saving measures to preserve as many jobs as possible had been explored and exhausted. BuzzFeed will reportedly now focus on HuffPost, which it acquired in 2020 as a single news brand due to the publication being profitable with a loyal direct front-page audience. BuzzFeed News' closure comes the same day as Insider Inc. announced it will cut roughly 10% of its staff in order to keep the company healthy and competitive. Narrative A comes from Slate. BuzzFeed News' shutdown is sad but unsurprising. As audiences and advertisers move away from traditional social media platforms such as Facebook toward video services like YouTube and TikTok, while more traditional media outlets with loyal readership such as the New York Times continue to thrive, the end of the road was always inevitable for BuzzFeed News, which depended on drive-by clicks. Narrative B coming from The Atlantic. This decision highlights the feelings of the online information economy. Plummeting digital advertising has cut into the profitability of major tech companies. However, it is a shame that an award-winning, newsworthy publication is the first to be grounded. The move also raises questions about Peretti's future intentions with BuzzFeed, as he doubles down on artificial intelligence as a route to transform the company into a premier platform for AI-powered content. Protests in Sri Lanka on the fourth anniversary of the Easter bombings. Hear the facts as agreed upon by the Hindu, Independent, and Al Jazeera. Thousands of Sri Lankans held a protest Friday in the capital city of Colombo to demand justice for April 21, 2019 Easter Sunday bombings that killed 269 people and wounded some 500 more. Protesters want the government to uncover who's responsible for the suicide bombings of two Catholic churches, one Protestant church, as well as three tourist hotels that killed 42 foreigners from 14 countries. Sri Lanka's Catholic Church has questioned the slow pace of both domestic and international investigations, including by the Vatican and UN. Archbishop of Colombo, Malcolm Ranjith, called the bombings a grand political conspiracy rather than just a religious extremist attack. Communication failures between then-President Maithripala Sirisena and then-Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe, members of opposing parties, have been blamed for authorities not acting on foreign intelligence received before the attacks. As a result of these failures, the nation's Supreme Court ordered Siri Sena to pay 100 million rupees, that's 273,000 American dollars, from his personal funds, and secretary to the Ministry of Defense at the time to pay 210 million rupees, that's $574,000. Wick Remesinghe is now the president. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Narrative A coming from Daily Mirror. Despite hundreds of suspects having been interviewed and multiple investigatory commissions established, the Sri Lankan government has failed to achieve justice for the devastating attack. Though some politicians were forced to pay fines, financial penalties have done nothing to truly hold the murderers accountable. 
If other countries can quickly prosecute and convict suspects for far lesser crimes, why can't Sri Lanka punish suicide bombers and the government officials who allowed them to kill hundreds of people? And Narrative B from Daily News of Sri Lanka. Though it could take years, given there are dozens of defendants and thousands of individual charges, the Sri Lankan Attorney General's Department has already begun its prosecution of the alleged attackers. This investigation has been complicated as the terrorists and their families are under a prosecutorial microscope, which shows how much information authorities must sift through before justice can be served. This investigation is proceeding accordingly. News coming from the world of soccer as Juventus's 15-point deduction has been overturned. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, BBC News, Eurosport, Guardian, and Reuters. On Thursday, the Italian Olympic Committee, the country's highest sporting court, overturned a 15-point penalty previously given to soccer team Juventus for financial violations, pending a final decision by the Italian Football Association's appeals court. Juventus was punished in January after being found guilty of falsifying capital gains related to transfer dealings between 2019 and 2021. However, the club has denied any wrongdoing, and the penalty's reversal will bring Juve from 7th to 3rd in Serie A. The decision was made after a three-hour hearing on Wednesday afternoon, with Juventus now only two points behind Lazio in 2nd, and pushing AC Milan outside of Champions League qualification. January's punishment also banned several members of the club's board from football activities. Paolo Garimberti, Enrico Villano, and Pavel Nedved were successful in appealing their charges, but former club presidents Fabio Peratisi and Federico Cherubini saw their appeals rejected. The Sports Guarantee Board didn't completely exonerate Juventus of wrongdoing, ruling that a soccer court comprised of different judges should hold new proceedings against the club and its embattled directors. Juventus's CFO Francesco Calvo stated that the news allowed the club to finally have certainty and expected the 15 points to remain forever. The club still faces potential sporting penalties by the court due to a separate case surrounding irregularities in the club's payment to players. All right, we have a narrative spin on this story from the world of sport. Narrative A comes from the Black, White, Red, All Over SB Nation blog. While there is some uncertainty due to the necessity for the ruling to be upheld by the appeals court, the result is a reason for Juventus and its supporters to be happy. Now the club is suddenly back in Champions League contention. While worries will continue to linger, the decision should be celebrated while it continues to stand. Narrative B coming from the Football Italia Twitter account. The latest ruling is the worst possible scenario for Serie A. Soccer standings for many clubs will not be decided on the pitch for the rest of the season. And any definitive results cannot be expected until the end of the season. In reality, it would have been much better if the committee ruled one way or the other, instead of keeping Italian soccer in a limbo. Eric, do you watch uh, Ted Lasso, the uh, soccer show on Apple TV? No, I don't. Oh, it's a good show. It's The whole point is about it's about someone who doesn't know anything about soccer. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's a really good show. It's about an American football coach who, due to a weird set of circumstances, has to coach a European football team, which is soccer. And, uh, you know, hilarity ensues. Okay. Well, when you watch it, give me a full report. Okay, I will. <laughs> Our final story, Canadian police are investigating a $15 million heist at Toronto's airport. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC, The Star, BBC News, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and CP24. Canadian police are investigating a major heist at Toronto's Pearson International Airport, 
in which approximately 20 million Canadian dollars, that's 14.8 million U.S. dollars, of gold and other valuable assets vanished on Monday. Peel Police Inspector Stephen Duvetskin spoke to the media Thursday and said a high-value container was stolen after it was offloaded into a holding cargo facility from a plane that had arrived at Canada's busiest airport. According to Duvetskin, the missing aircraft container was about five square feet in size and contained other items of monetary value in addition to gold. He added that his team is investigating all avenues. The inspector said the entire process of unloading and handling the assets was in line with normal procedure, and the valuable cargo was removed by illegal means after its arrival, calling the situation very rare. Meanwhile, the Greater Toronto Airport's authority said thieves accessed the public side of a warehouse leased to a third party and outside its primary security line. Much of Canada's gold is frequently at Pearson before being flown overseas, and nearly half of its air cargo goes through the airport. Air Canada cargo operations were allegedly handling the high-value goods when they disappeared, but an Air Canada spokesperson told CTV News Toronto that the company has no information to provide. Scott, thank you for the facts of this peculiar story. The first spin is Narrative A, coming from The Guardian. Regional and national police are looking into this massive heist. There isn't much information available at this time, but investigators believe this is an isolated incident that doesn't appear to be a professional job. Thefts like this are rare in Canada, and authorities will get to the bottom of it. And Narrative B comes from the Toronto Sun. While this is indeed a rare incident, it isn't the first gold heist at Pearson Airport. Given its status as the epicenter of Canada's air cargo traffic, dealing with millions of dollars worth of valuables, this embarrassing stunt calls into question the proficiency of its security. We can meet up later this weekend. I have some shopping I need to get done before next week. Yeah, no, I think you're, uh, I think you're right. We'll, uh, we'll meet up. Uh, I thought maybe we could meet at Costco and then uh, we just part ways there. It's a good idea. Yeah, like in the parking lot, we can gas yeah. up for cheap and then, uh, and get, then out. Just, yeah. get out. Yeah, Costco's a store that accepts cash. You know, fewer that, are. That's uh, true. That. Anyway, that's true. So uh, okay, yeah. yeah. So why don't All we right, uh, let's finish okay. the show up? Uh, okay. okay. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, April 22nd, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.